Hi, this is Glenn Lowry. I want to once again thank you all for listening to this show, and I'd like to issue an extra thank you to those who have selected to support the show financially through Patreon. This mic, for example, the one I'm speaking into right now, is a consequence of your generosity. So thank you. I'm happy to say that the Patreon page is becoming something of a community where people discuss the topics brought up in my conversations with guests, where they share resources with one another, and where they ask questions. I do try to answer some of these questions by responding to comments when I can, but I think there's a more effective way to go about this. Accordingly, starting this month, February of 2021, John McWhorter and I will inaugurate monthly Q&A sessions. Since we already have over 2,000 people at Patreon, the asking of the questions that we will address will be limited to those who support us at the $10 tier. But our answers in the form of a special hour or so long conversation between myself and John will be available monthly to patrons at both the five and the $10 tiers. To join our community, please go to patreon.com forward slash Glenn Show. Should you decide to join the $10 tier, you'll see a post at the top of the page that invites you to ask questions. Those joining the $10 tier should also expect another piece of exclusive content from me this week. This will be a recitation of my interview at Bucknell University about reflecting on the 1960s at 50. It's a 45 minute or so conversation well, actually, me reading the text of a conversation where I discuss the legacies of Martin Luther King Jr. and of Malcolm X, amongst other things. Access to this will also be restricted to the $10 tier. If you choose the $5 option, you can expect the first Q&A session to be posted in about two weeks on or about February 15th. If you want to donate a custom amount above the suggested tiers, please be mindful that you will need to select one of the tiers while signing up. If you don't, then Patreon will put you in a no tier category, and that'll make it difficult to deliver videos to you. None of this changes the regular Glenn Show programming. We'll continue to publish an episode each week. Again, many thanks. John, I think we are underway. Are you ready? We are, we are ready. How are you doing, John? I'm pretty good. How are you, Glenn? I am excellent, man. It's winter time. It's cold and snowy, but uh, it's also quiet, and we got some time here to talk. I'm happy to be talking with you. This is Glenn Lowry, and uh, you're at the Glenn Show here, Glenn Show at bloggingheads.tv. Glenn and John, John McWhorter teaches at Columbia University. I teach at Brown. We call ourselves the Black Guys at bloggingheads.tv. Uh, we're also the Glenn Show, patreon.com forward slash the Glenn Show. Uh, and we're back uh, to talk about everything under the sun here. Uh, John, you've got news. Yeah, I do. I want to share it with our audience. Folks, yeah. this book this book that I've been talking about, this um, anti-racist -anti book, it's called The Elect. And that book is now available to you. The physical book won't be available until probably sometime in 2022. 
And the reason for that, I have to be clear, is not just because publishing is slow. That's not my problem. So it's not, this is not a coded way of asking for publishers to come in and say, we'll do it now. I've been very flattered to hear people do that. It's that I have a book on profanity that I wrote before that's coming out in May. And the publisher understandably doesn't want me to release some other book that would interfere with the attention they'd like to give to that book. But that means that nobody could come out with another book of mine under the terms of the contract until May, certainly. And in reality, you wouldn't want to bring it out until probably next Christmas, and that's too long. So that just means that a book jumped out of me last summer when I happened to have already written another book, and that meant that I couldn't just put it out. So I want the book to get out there, but I have to bypass the publishing industry because otherwise the book will be ancient and you know unreadable by the time it actually comes out. So I am now on Substack, this thing called Substack, and I am releasing the book in bits and pieces over 10 pieces actually over the next five months. And I'm charging their lowest subscription rate, which is $5 a month. And that will mean that you have to pay the $5 for each set of two segments. You can't come in at the end and just spend $5. But the idea is for a nominal fee for you to be able to read the book and it will be out. The first segment is already on Substack. It is behind that $5 paywall, but I'll also be writing a piece. I'll be doing a newsletter for Substack where every week and sometimes more than once a week, I'll be having my say, sometimes about race, sometimes about language, sometimes about God knows what. And I'll be putting that on Substack for free. I'll still be at the Atlantic, but I'll also be writing for Substack. And to be honest, I love the Atlantic, but with the Substack pieces, I will be completely unfiltered. And I think that some of you at this point know that I'm beginning to feel kind of unfiltered lately in some ways. I'm going to give release to that on Substack. So Substack, for free, you get pieces and slightly longer than I usually get to do for other organs. And then also for a nominal fee, just $5 a month, you get to read this book I've been talking about for all this time. And I welcome feedback about the book. So that is the news. I'm still at the Atlantic. I still teach at Columbia, but I now have a Substack. Please visit me there and please read the elect. And yeah, please, I, I would like to have the subscription money because of various things that are going on in my life. But mainly, please just read, read the, the book. The elect is now available to you. So that's it. Okay, I have several reactions. One is, you're so prolific. Two is, oh my God, you've gone commercial on us. Sorry. Three is me too. <laughs> let me <laughs> let me cover those quickly in order. <laughs> you're so prolific. Wait a minute, you've got a book. Uh, what is this? The twelve forbidden words. What do you call it? Nine nasty words. Nine yeah. nasty words. And you've got a book in hand, and you've got a book uh, on the shelf, and you can't put them both out at the same time. So you have to. You have to devise a uh, indirect way of disseminating your prolific output so that they don't come into conflict with each other. That's an embarrassment of riches. There's something wrong with me. I write very fast. I just, the one, the elect leapt out of me this summer because I was so angry. I, I couldn't stop writing. I told my agent, I know you don't really want me to write this, but I can't stop. It's going to exist. What are we going to do with this? It's just your agent was trying to pace you. He says, let's not pile these books up on top of each other because he's a really good agent. But yeah. um, I just said, I can't stop. We're going to have to 
do something with this book. Now I, yeah, saw, I saw a bio it. of you uh, recently in which the sentence author of 20 books appeared. That was a true statement. It's frankly- This is a prolific different. writer here, 20 books. I like writing books. You know, when I was five, I told my mother I wanted to be a book writer. And what I meant was nonfiction. I didn't know that word, but I wanted to write books where you teach people things. And I actually got to grow up and be that. And that is why I write too many books. They, they come out of me. I have to finish them. And when it's done, I have this, this heavenly feeling. It's just, it had to get out of my head. And the elect, I, that felt like somebody else was writing it. I felt like Muhammad. It just had to come out. And I'm not saying it's all that wonderful, but I need <laughs> yes, to make a statement. No, no, quite well, honestly. Wait, wait, wait. You felt like Muhammad, but you're not saying it's wonderful. <laughs> I wouldn't say that the elect is going to be considered my very best book. I shouldn't say that. But I think it's something that me at this point in time needed to say on the behalf of a whole lot of other people. We want and to come back to that, but I just want to make my point here. Okay, so you're prolific. More power to you. <laughs> you're gone commercial on us, John. You, you're, you're out there in the marketplace now. You, you're... you're uh, bidding to double your Columbia University salary, which I have no idea what it is, but I can do arithmetic like the next person. <laughs> $5 for uh, what, five installments? Uh, you know, multiply that by some multiples of tens of thousands and we, you see what we're talking about here. I'm a wasp about money, stereotypically, as in I don't like to think about it. As long as I have enough that I don't have to worry about it, it's not something I want to think about. People find it very peculiar about me. For example, until recently, I really didn't know what a second mortgage was, and I'm not being cute. I didn't know what that meant. I'm too busy thinking about other things. It's a, it's a flaw of mine. But some things have happened to me lately where I need some money. And I figure the only way that I can make more than I have is to go a little bit commercial. But you know, even with what we've been doing here with Patreon, you had to kind of drag me into that because I just, it's not the way I think. I just figure we're doing something and I've got other things to think about than cash. And but I was kind of dragged into it myself by the great Robert Wright, proprietor of the Blogging Heads platform, mm -hmm. because it just was a very natural move to make in this particular juncture, given our, the audience that we're generating and, and the way things are flowing. But, oh, but Glenn, I'm going to interrupt yeah. briefly. I, this didn't occur to me until now. You know what this is feeding into. This is going to get clipped. You know, that kind of person who says that we only say the sorts of things we say. Well, that's exactly what I was going. Like it's true. No, okay, that's exactly, ahead. that's what, the, I had three points. One is you're prolific, more power to you, brother. Keep writing. The Thank second you. point was you've gone commercial. And of course the you is, we've gone commercial because it's a self-referential observation because here we are on Patreon and we're asking people to pay $5 to subscribe to the Glenn Show to get it on the Monday instead of on a Friday and all of that. And you know what the old school people back at the free platform of blogging heads uh, who are not getting money for their contributions are saying, I don't, I don't know if you follow what they're saying, but some of them are saying, how come you had, in effect, in effect, they're saying, uh, I see you went commercial. It's like selling out. It's like, it's like uh, greed. It, it's like capitalism, which is, you know, in certain high-minded quarters, supposed to be a bad thing. Uh, it's like now you're playing to the audience. I mean, once you go commercial, your motives come into question. People start filtering what you say to them through the interpretive lens of, I see, he's trying to curry favor and cultivate 
a following. He's looking for clicks. He's he's in it for the money. You're no longer pure. I mean, uh, as an economist, I must say this makes me smile. It makes me smile. Mm -hmm. Offering up value for free is noble and good, but <laughs> seizing on ex and exploiting economic opportunity on behalf of your grandchildren is crass and, and commercial and cheap. You know, I mean, I think there's a, an elaborate critique of that effie, uh, self-righteous mentality that could be offered, but I won't detail this, detain us here. You've gone commercial on us, John. You know $5 what the answer to that month. actually? Yeah, five whole dollars. You know, the answer to that is, if anybody thinks that you and I have quote unquote gone commercial, then they have to explain why it took so long. I mean, we sat here and did this for free for literally 14 years. I think some people think we only started doing this a few years ago, which is understandable. We've been doing this since we were different people. And people have always said, why don't you monetize this? And I frankly barely know what that word means. And I was just went on about my business. If we were that mercenary, we would have done something about it a long time ago. I'm somebody who's never even had a website. If I were mercenary, wouldn't I have a website telling people what my next trips are? I've seen people who frankly, not that many people know who have these websites where they're obviously trying to make more people know them by, you know, having every single thing they write. I've never bothered. Yeah, I'm not a mercenary person. There's a, my mother made us Quakers when I was about 11 and I never quite took to it, but there's a part of me that's always stuck with it. And it's about moderation. Money's not a big thing to me, but lately I happened to need a little and I thought I would be crazy. And anybody who says that about us, and I'm, I'm not going to be listening, but until they've ever said the same thing about someone like Ta-Nehisi Coates or Ibram Kendi or Nicole Hannah-Jones making extra money from what they do, then I, they're out of court. Why is it that they deserve to get paid, but we don't? And I don't think anybody would have an answer to that that would really hold up. Yeah, yeah not, I don't want to talk about the three named people right now. I, I want to talk about 12 not years. Not about them specifically. But 12 no. years, 12 years, at least once a month. Glenn and John at the Glenn Show for a decade plus, never asked for a penny, mm -hmm. never held our hands out, never had any expectation, absolutely purely public spirited intellectual engagement to the edification of it was. hundreds of thousands. Excuse me for tooting my own horn for a minute. We earned the platform that we have through dedicated self-application consistently for a decade, there are people who were in high school when they started listening to us who are 30 years old now. Yeah, that's true. Okay. Yeah, that's So true. please don't question our motive for simply trying to exist in the marketplace of ideas and trying to feed our families over here. Okay, we earned it. So I said I had three points. Yeah. One was, John, you are a monster. You produce books like, I don't know. <laughs> Second one is you've gone commercial, but commercial is the way of the world. Please, can we just have a, the opportunity to make a living and get remunerated for the time that we put into something of value? Please, that's not unfair. But third, I want to say me too, because everybody wants to know where's my book. And I signed with W.W. Norton, John. I signed with W.W. Oh, Norton. I got a big advance, y'all. I got... Uh, September delivery date on the manuscript that they don't play over there at WW Norton. Okay. I gotta, I gotta give them a manuscript and I got a 2022 publication date coming out on, on the memoir. So that's all I'm going to say. Y'all, I'm not even going to 
talk about it. I'm just going to get it done. But uh, but I'm I'm uh, trying to catch up with you, John. That's fantastic. Thank you. You're just better. That is fantastic. Wow, that must feel so good. Hmm. Yeah, Don wow. Fair, my agent, Don Fair, did a did a really uh, good job for me. Uh, are you supposed to say who your agent is? Yeah, I should say. My agent is Dan Dan Conaway at Writer's House, and he's amazing. In an old movie, he would be chomping on a cigar and be using two telephones at a time. He knows everybody. And he <laughs> I really, know that guy. He, <laughs> you know him? Well, Edward G. Hold Robinson played him. That. Edward G. Robinson played him in Double Indemnity. <laughs> yes, he is that that person, and he doesn't act anything like that. But he is that that character, and he yeah. just he really does the job. And he's been really good at dealing with his client writing this crazy book at a time when he shouldn't and a lot of people are not going to like, et cetera. He's been very gracious about it. Yeah. So yeah, it helps to have a good agent. Now yeah, Don Fair is with again. Trident. They call themselves the Trident Group. Uh, they're first rate as well. Uh, I said uh, three things. I said, John is prolific. I said, uh, we have gone commercial. And I've said, uh, me too. And the other part of the me too is I've also got a Substack newsletter, which is free. And where I put out stuff, small commentary, uh, as well as some uh, excerpts of transcripts of Glenn Show uh, uh, episodes. Uh, it's uh, glennlowry.substack.com. And you can check out my newsletter where there's content that I put up pretty much every week. Um, so anyway, that's, hmm. that's a- that's a Content, says yeah. the mercenary person who's just learning. I guess on Substack, I'm supposed to put other stuff too to attract people, like yeah. not just writing something, but I'm, I'm supposed to link to, to, to things. Well, they huh, get an okay. uh, email, yeah, right? Okay. They get an email in their inbox every time you post. And uh, then they get addicted to the emails because they're so interesting and they're looking forward to it. And then when you go behind the paywall, you get paid. <laughs> this is not me, but I've got to do it. Yep, yep, we have to do this. Okay, so, so let's move on, We've we've done that. Uh, what about this new Biden administration? And uh, it's a new day. It's a new day. Uh, the, the racist is out of the White House. And uh, the first person of color to serve as vice president of the United States is in the administration. And the guy who spoke to the country from Jacob Blake's bedside in the hospital, that's Joseph Biden, the guy who said, the reason I decided to run was Charlottesville when the president of the United States, Donald Trump, supported white supremacy. Of course, that's false, but never mind. It doesn't matter. It was negative on Donald Trump. So we don't care whether or not it's false. But he, but Biden said that was the reason that he ran. The man who has a Senate uh, in his uh, uh, party, in part because of the campaign that Stacey Abrams led, uh, for uh, mobilizing minority voters, which had to have had a decisive effect, uh, at least in the uh, in the Georgia Senate races uh, that uh, were concluded on uh, in favor of the Democrats recently. This is Joseph Biden. This is Joseph Biden. Uh, he's president of the United States. He's issuing executive orders left and right, and he has an agenda in terms of racial equity, inclusion, uh, and diversity, which is a, a woke agenda. And uh, it behooves uh, you, John, to comment on, on what you think about uh, these uh, developments. And since we've been talking here, in some ways critical of the woke agenda, uh, 
are we uh, are we excited? Are we disappointed? Or what 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 do we what do you anticipate to be the the next steps and so on? Well, um, in terms of the executive orders that related to what we as the black guys at blogging heads are supposed to be talking about, there were only two. And I know it's early. He has other things he's going to do, but one of them was about housing equity for black people, and the other one was about no more federal funding for private prisons. And there's only so much to chew on with that. I mean, he's only been in for about five minutes. I wasn't oh, excuse aware. Me, excuse, me. Might, I, excuse me, excuse me. What about the critical race theory? Didn't he, didn't uh, Trump have something saying federal agencies couldn't hire for um, diversity training? And then, yes. Uh, Biden rescinded it. But that's, a, that's less significant. That anti-critical race. Okay, theory. excuse me for the Right, yeah. No, no, that's absolutely right. That was sort of the, the negative the negative thing. And I just thought, I didn't know that the housing issue was so important. And it may be that I just have missed that aspect of things, but I, I'm certainly with it if it would help black people, simple as that. On the prisons, those are real things. I am more interested in issues of policy that probably can't be addressed at the federal level anyway. It's more a state issue, but you might have something to say about the issue of prisons because there was a time when you wrote and spoke much more than I ever did about incarceration itself. Like, what do you think of that idea of not having these organizations that are basically in business to keep people behind bars? Is that meaningful anti-racist no, legislation? No, I don't think so. I mean, it's like motherhood and apple pie. You're supposed to be against private prisons. I, I did write uh, about uh, over-incarceration and especially about the racial incidents of it and wrote a book called uh, uh, race incarceration and american values this 2008 it's just a collection of uh, lectures that i gave at stanford on this question and i was in high dudgeon i was very upset and almost uh left of center radical john to some degree and decrying uh what had happened what had happened after 1980 which was a world historic increase in the extent of incarceration in the United States with a huge racial disparity. And yes, I wrote about that in a way that would be very sympathetic to the woke sensibility. I wrote about that. Um, I never addressed myself explicitly to the issue of private prisons. I would have thought even then, and I certainly think now that it's a second order question with respect to the uh, incarceration issue. It's basically about, I mean, it's a little bit like a little bit like the debate about charter schools or private, you know, promoting uh, choice for, for parents or whatnot. You, 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 you've got a public good that has to be produced. Now it's incarceration services. It's holding people in detention. It's uh, holding them in prison, punishing them. Uh, the state can provide that service or, the, quote unquote, the market can provide that service, private firms doing it. Uh, which is the most efficient way to go is not a moral question. It's a technical question. And I can envision in the vast uh, uh, space, which is the public provision of detention, that relying on private contracting might be helpful to state governments as they try to uh, solve the uh, solve the problems. Do I really want to stand up a unionized bureaucracy of public employees for for every activity? Do I have enough flexibility to be able to adapt to uh, changing technology and changing uh, market conditions to 
about this thing. I don't mean to go too abstract economical on you. I'm just saying, to me, it's a little bit like the privatization of any public service that's being provided. What about private police? We rely on private police. We, we don't get our security only from publicly employed police officers. A lot of private security exists. It's a huge industry out there. We rely. What about the Postal Service? Has it got to be the government? Or can FedEx and U, uh, UPS and all the others a amplify and uh, extend the provision of the services in an efficient way? So I think about private prisons like that. I think the ideology that private prisons means there's a profit in holding people in uh, custody and therefore- So what about that part? The, yeah. the demand will create its own supply, so to speak. They want prisoners and they'll mm -hmm. bribe the judges or do other things. I, I, I'm not persuaded that that's a really important uh, factor. Uh, and it feels a little bit more to me like almost a kind of ideological grandstanding. You know, I'm I, just like I'm against capitalism. You see, capitalism is causing people to be in prison because there's a profit in it. I, I think that's a fallacy. I, I mean, there is a profit. It wouldn't be privately provided if there weren't any profit. Nothing is provided for free. There is a profit in it. There's nothing wrong with there being a profit in FedEx moving a package from one place to another. The post office doesn't get a profit. FedEx does. There's no problem. There's no problem, it seems to me, with setting up a private school and having parents get public money to purchase those services. A lot of people would disagree, but it's not some fundamental issue of fairness, it's, it's a question of how do we manage the technical problem of paying for and delivering services, public services to people. So I, 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 I don't, it's not the boogeyman. To me, it's not the boogeyman. And it's not that big. I mean, it's, uh, I don't know, 2%, 3% of the people who are incarcerated now in certain areas like in immigration detention, illegal immigration detention and whatnot, I think the private provision is, will be a much bigger portion of it. And I'm not saying there aren't problems. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not saying that there aren't people who do try to, there was a famous case in Pennsylvania, if I'm not mistaken, where uh, a judge was in effect being bribed through kickbacks to refer people to a private, uh, what ended up being a private, because mm -hmm. there was huge profits in it. And other such cases might be found. That's called fraud. There does exist fraud with this mm -hmm. profit. There's fraud in Medicare. There's, there's fraud in a lot. There's fraud in the disability programs that, you know, so... That doesn't, to me, refute that. So how do I interpret the Biden move? What I'm saying here is we can talk about incarceration uh, and prison reform more broadly, but with respect to uh, the federal government will no longer do contracts with private prisons. He's, he's playing to uh, the activist uh, uh, wing of, of his coalition of African-Americans and undoubtedly, uh, implementing some of the things that the people who are going to be influential in this administration and guiding policy on, on race and uh, equity issues uh, would embrace. And they're coming from that wing of the American political conversation, in which private prisons are an anathema, in which the new Jim Crow is the, is the kind of uh, metaphor or narrative uh, of talking about uh, crime control issues. And I should point out, Standing in the year 2007, as I did at Stanford, and inveighing against the outrageous atrocity, which was American mass incarceration and its racial footprint, was one thing. The numbers had just been going like that 
They've been going like that since 1980. We quadrupled the number of people oh. held in custody between 1980 and 2000. Up and up and up and up and up. Crime had peaked in the early 1990s and had then entered into a period of rapid decline. But the numbers, even during Bill Clinton's second administration, kept going up and up and up. The racial disparity was huge. That was like this. The crime rates were going down. <clears throat> the year now is 2020, and we're not in that situation. The prison population has peaked and it started to go down. The momentum is in the area of uh, criminal justice reform. Uh, even the Trump administration was in favor of criminal justice. A lot of conservative Republicans are. You've got DAs all around this country who are decarcerating, who are fighting against bail, who, who are uh, allowing offenders for low-value property crimes to, to go. It's very controversial in many cities, from Los Angeles to Chicago to St. Louis. But these left-of-center DAs to Boston have gotten into fights with police unions and are reordering the priorities in Philadelphia of, uh, of uh, uh, what the DA's office is supposed to do. People are walking for first offense gun possession uh, detentions and whatnot, uh, et cetera. So, and the crime rate is going up. The level of violent crime in American cities and the largest American cities, I talked about this in the last episode of The Glenn Show with Robert Cherry, is up 30%, 35%, 20 20 over 2019. Um, we're not any longer in the 1990s or the early aughts with respect to criminal justice issues. So I, I'd, I'd be, I, you know, anyway, I've said, I've said enough about that. Um, uh, yeah, I should give yeah. you a chance to reply. I, I think um, that you have me thinking also about the whole critical race theory aspect of things. And the fact that the Trump administration came out against that kind of educational approach and material with their basis being that it tears the country apart, that it doesn't encourage a sense of pride in America, that it discourages there being any sense of American history as having anything to be proud of. And all of that has uh, make America great again, right-wing Republican zealot ring to it. That means that I think a lot of people feel that to be against this new current in education means that you are a right-wing zealot. But that business of tarring by association gets very sloppy. And the truth is that even if the Trump administration's motives for coming out against CRT, critical race theory in that way, where what many of us would regard as not ours and perhaps even impure, that doesn't mean that there isn't something really alarming going on in a lot of educational entities these days in terms of what they think of as education to be. And a lot of this is affecting children. And so you and I, for example, are privy privately to what went on at the Dalton School um, here in New York City, where I am, where apparently the entire curriculum has been turned upside down into these endless indoctrination sessions about the nature of racial oppression in the United States, including role-playing games and separation of people by race, and all of this being done by people who think of themselves on the side of the angels. This is a school that's been running for 100 years as one of the most innovative and effective educational institutions on earth. And because of the fear that these CRT types inspire, in other people, the idea that if you don't agree with them, you're going to be called a racist in public. Goodness gracious, that scares people. The whole school has possibly been ruined. Bryn Mawr was essentially taken over 
by students demanding that kind of ideology as what was taught in all classrooms for weeks to the point that some people have withdrawn their students from the school. The president or whatever the head of Bryn Mawr is called, and she should be called out, Kim Cassidy, actually gave in to these students and apologized for initially criticizing them for, for example, making other students, frankly, most of the student body, scared to their socks for not agreeing to this idea that the education in the school needed to be completely hijacked. This sort of thing is happening in various places, and in each case, CRT fans could say, well, that's extreme, but. But the problem is this has become a meme nationwide, and we only need think about the Princeton letter that we've talked about, which basically implies that Princeton ought to be run by a star chamber of people deciding what's racist and what isn't. This whole dialogue is getting a little frightening. I write about it actually in my latest Atlantic piece, and I have to say my latest Substack piece. This stuff is scary, and I would bring it up even if there wasn't my new Substack account. This way of looking at things really is becoming overly influential given, and the reason I'm saying it's overly influential is because it doesn't teach people how to think constructively except about one very narrow thing. And it's not based on any coherent philosophy of education. It's a religion. This is religion being preached as some sort of higher truth by people, most of whom I doubt consider themselves very religious. So, okay, we're not gonna have the White House prescribing against critical race theory and education. But on the other hand, we do need to have a conversation if there's gonna be a racial reckoning under the Biden administration as to what that reckoning is gonna be. And if the reckoning is gonna be that any black person who decides to exert the performance art of saying that their institution is racist will have 90% of what they demand given to them because everybody is peeing their pants being afraid that somebody's gonna call them a bigot on Twitter. This country is in serious trouble. And anybody who wants to tell me that I shouldn't say that until there's no such thing as a right-wing militia zealot who might overtake the Capitol, anybody who says that we can't talk about that until we do something about the idiots on the right, well, you know what? Frankly, I don't believe you. I think that really the people who say that just don't want to hear what they know is a truth because they're afraid that somebody's going to call them racist on Twitter if they don't bow down. We've got to sit these people back down. And notice, I'm not saying chase them out of the room, but the hyper wokesters need to go back to the way it was 20 years ago when they were one voice at the table. And it does not make anybody a right wing zealot to feel that what's happening at places like Dalton is deeply, deeply wrong. You can be somebody who's just a good old fashioned liberal. John, that was me. a rant. That was that was a rant in, in the spirit of Glenn. I'm disgusted. <laughs> I am utterly, that was kind of like you, but I am so utterly in there. disgusted. So CRT, everybody who doesn't know is critical race theory. This is the intellectual scaffolding that kind of undergirds a lot of this postmodern, latter day, anti-racist zealotry, diversity training, uh, the, the things that are going on in workplaces and institutions and in educational institutions that John is talking about. So there's that, there's, there's CRT. And you agree with the Trump administration's antipathy toward that particular intellectual outlook. And you had no problem when the Trump administration attempted to use their executive authority to stamp it out in terms of uh, em uh, employment, human resource uh, policy of the federal employees. Okay. I didn't like uh, their reasons, but I liked that there was a pushback. Yeah, I, ha I have to admit their that motives, was the one thing they, they were did. doing I... the right thing. Okay. So you thought- Frankly, yeah. Yeah. So another thing is this peeing pants metaphor that you've got, the, this image of this uh, T 
terrified, cowardly, spineless white person so fearful that they're going to be said to be out of step with the with the, the sensibility of racial justice advocacy that they uh, sign on to or endure ridiculous humiliation uh, and re-education, uh, in, uh, which they probably loathe and, and can see uh, transparently as being a power move by uh, the, the uh, racial justice advocates, but nevertheless, they endure it humbly because they can't bear being called racist. And you're saying they're peeing their pants. I think that's very- uh, This is accurate. Very interesting. Yes. Uh, you have to imagine, this is, this is your rant, but you have to imagine a person sitting in business clothes behind a desk where if they came out from behind the desk, you'd see a suspicious stain. That is the way I actually think of all of these people. Yes, including individually, and I won't take it back. I believe in that metaphor strongly. Continue. Uh, I'm not sure I know exactly what I want to say. Uh, it's a catastrophe. <laughs> it, 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 it's like the cultural revolution. Do you revolution. see what a it's catastrophe like, this is? This, this is like the cultural revolution. I mean, small c, small r. I'm talking about China. I'm talking about uh, struggle sessions. I'm, I'm talking about uh, people being let out of, uh, you know, with uh, dunce caps on and being put in the corner and ridiculed because they're not with what the party says is the right ideological interpretation of the most latest wrinkle of, of whatever political economy development there is. They're too educated, they're too bourgeois, they're, they're, they're too uh, property-centered, they're too acquisitive, they haven't got the spirit of the revolution. This kind of thing uh, being carried on and careers being ruined because of it. Marriages coming to an end because of it. Children turning on their parents because of it. Institutions being completely uh, gutted in terms of their capacity to carry on their function because of it. Um, a finger pointing, uh, kind of orgy of uh, uh, finger pointing and witch huntery. The 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 witch hunting. The the uh, you know burning at the stake. The apostates. I mean the not quite literally burning them, but endure a Twitter mob when you're, you have a public relations sensitive business profile and, and, you're, and you're, you have to endure a Twitter mob. That's not quite being burned at the mm -hmm. stake, but it's definitely a bad thing, a bad thing to happen to you. And do you know, do you know the latest case of this? University of Illinois at Chicago. Jason Kilborn is a law professor. He made an exam, and one of the questions was about employment discrimination in real life. And he had the N-word and the word B-I-T-C-H expurgated but mentioned because it was part of the case. N asterisk, 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 asterisk on the on, and then the B word. A group of black students pilloried him for this, one of them claiming that she experienced heart palpitations when she saw expurgated N-word and B word. And there was one of these black students who had an hours long Zoom conversation with this professor, Jason Kilborn, where at one point, the professor getting a little upset said, well, I guess that, that you know, such and such is gonna think that I'm gonna turn into some homicidal maniac. Do you know that student then went 
and told the superiors that he really thought that Professor Kilbourne might be a danger physically to black students because of that flippant comment he made about homicidal maniac. So his administrative duties have been stripped from him. He's no longer teaching the class and he's physically barred from campus because of students adopting this kind of ideology. And it actually had the power that some people behind desks urinated upon themselves and all but destroyed this man's at least semester and probably interfered in general with his career. And yet we're supposed to think that this isn't a problem because okay, of the you insurrection mean it, You that mean it metaphorically that you're, you're that you don't, you don't mean literally that they <laughs> I'm sure that they had the people basic behind control, the desk are the president or the vice president or the provost or whatever. The people who did this to him, yes. That's what's happening these days. And it's not an isolated story. I could go on, but I won't. So yeah, I just think this idea that we can't talk about that because there was an insurrection at the Capitol is really craven. And I do think that we need to talk about this. What I'm interested in is close reporting from the inside about the political social psychology of these movements. Um, the student who says, quote, in asterisk, 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 in reference to the N word, who can't bear being exposed to a string of, of uh, digits that are representative <laughs> of a concept of a word. When, if you turn on the radio and tune to a hip hop channel, you hear the word endlessly. And I'll bet this very student has been at parties where the word is being screamed out by people in unison as they do that line dance thing that they do or whatever it is that they do. I'm an old man. I don't know what they do anymore. But, I, but I'm just saying the spectacle of, of that kind of a move, that's a power move, man. That, that's, a, that's a play for control, control of the conversation, control of the institution. Uh, and it's it, patently absurd. It, it's, it's, you know, at some remove, you, you read about it and you say, this is madness. This is like the Salem witch trials or something. What's going on in the psychology of that incident? Who are these people who are wetting their pants behind the desk? What, what was the process through which they arrived at this particular sensibility? What are the students saying to each other in their private gatherings when they concoct these schemes and uh, reinforce the hysterical mood by compelling others in their number to conform or to be held in, in ill repute. We got a movement. Do they really think they have a movement? Do they, do they really think this is justice? Or are they cynical about it? Do they see it for what it is? Uh, playing on the sensibilities of a fraught and uh, insecure administrative structure knowing that their demands to occupy, whatever. I mean, I get these uh, reports all the time. You mentioned private knowledge that we had about what was going on at the Dalton School. I get it all the time. Somebody at a university, not to be named, where they have a uh, theater arts program was telling me about the 21-page uh, yeah. yeah. demand letter or whatever. Maybe it was only 18 pages, okay, that the community you need of, to say where that was i i need to say where it because was. that school that school needs to be called out because there's something wrong with this school in particular that school is boston university 
And uh, yes. the uh, Ibram Kendi Institute is at Boston University and probably had something I wasn't to thinking do about with that, inspiring but We this, get so many reports from BU about this stuff. But yeah. here's my point. My point is it had to have taken a committee weeks to, of, to just compose the list of demands. The list of demands went on forever. It had subheads and subheads under the subheads. They were going to restructure everything in the interest of, and they were, and, and their posture was, we demand this, we demand that, we demand this, we demand that. They had to have been a drafting committee. There must have been many meetings over coffee in the morning or late into the night in which people strategized about what to put under paragraph seven, sub A, uh, number uh, one. I mean, they, they, they must have been consumed by the effort and they thought themselves fighting for justice. They saw themselves as heroic in the undertaking. They, 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 you know, about minute administrative detail over the racial composition of the staff, about how many hours were going to be spent on one or another, about bringing in outside consultants to re-educate people on behalf of the, of the program. And they demand, they demand. Where do they get off thinking that they can demand? How did that come about? I want the inside story. I, 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 you know, there's so many people cowering in fear, afraid that to protest will leave them not just being called a racist, ruined, turned down at tenure time, uh, not getting an extension of their contract, uh, falling into disfavor with people who have power over their livelihood and their future. Uh, many of these administrators, I'll bet you, are sitting there thinking this is complete bullshit. But if I mishandle this, I'll never get the next step up in my career. I'll never get it because I'll be marked as a, mm -hmm. quote, a conservative, close quote, as someone mm -hmm. who is not well, or a racist, who has, who doesn't share our values. Mm -hmm. Who doesn't share? And they'll say that about me on Instagram, right? But think about yeah. how tyrannical that is. Mm -hmm. I, we're an institution of higher education. We have a perfectly competent faculty member who happens to differ with us about uh, anti-racism wokeness or whatever, who maybe is a devout Catholic who thinks that uh, abortion is a bad thing, who maybe is a black conservative who thinks that welfare makes black people dependent and wants to get rid of it, who maybe is a uh, the, the son or daughter of a blue uh, lives Matter uh, uh, cop uh, in one of these uh, low middle class uh, uh, white enclaves like Staten Island or something like that. Um, and, and that person has to live suppressing what they actually think, lest they be uh, made the victim of this kind of mob mentality. Uh, and you're right, I go on too long here. I protest this too much, I think. People will say, <laughs> just by the tone of my voice, the passion that I bring to it, aha, you're sympathetic to the people who uh, uh, attacked the Capitol on January 6th or something like that. Or you're insufficiently, yep. you know, yeah, you're not insufficiently right. devoted to the, you know, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So it, it is, you know, it's a bad there's thing. There's a, I um. I don't think that the students are necessarily sitting there over coffee and deciding how they are going to exert power. I think that 
what they're doing is a kind of self-gratifying performance art based often on insecurity. Some of it may be for reasons specific to the individual. Some of it is certainly the insecurity that you can have about being black. And part of the reason I know that, how does he know that? Part of it is because I'm black myself, contrary to popular belief. And I remember being young and I flirted with that kind of ideology. What it's do you 19- mean insecurity about being black? I just want to understand. I think it's easy to drink in the idea that white is better and that to be black is somehow to be other and perhaps inferior. That's been a problem for black people forever. And if that's how you're feeling, one way to feel better about your blackness is to use it as a way to claim that you've been hurt, which therefore puts the other people in the morally down position and makes you into a hero. That's a natural psychological process. I I just wanted to say, I did it. I remember doing it. I cringe when I think about it to this day. I've written about it once, but I don't think anybody ever read it. It's 1980. I'm 14. And I'm in my very quiet, private Quaker school. There were enough black kids. I wasn't lonely in any sense. There were enough. But of course, it was a white, upper middle class institution. And we're all sitting in the hall under the supervision of one one, middle-aged white woman. We were supposed to be being quiet. I wasn't being quiet and my voice had cracked and I have kind of a loud voice and I was talking to somebody. And she said, John, could you please be quiet? We're supposed to be being quiet here. And she said it nicely, but firmly. And I was embarrassed. I didn't like being disciplined, especially because I was, there was a girl I liked and I, I was in the down position. And so I actually told her, I looked her in the eye and I said, your problem is that you just want to see white faces here. You want me to go over there and you want me to go away. You played this is the about, race card. This is about color and you know it. And, you know, that, you know, who knows what's in somebody's heart, et cetera. But this woman was about as unracist as white people got in 1980. This is a Quaker school. There's some other things I remember about her. This was yeah, but she, she caved. And the thing is, no, she didn't cave. But uh, I'll never forget. This is another one of these stories where people are going to think this is I hope this is another story about me and a female person. But of course, people understand this one was 50. I'm 14. The look in her eyes just I could tell that that scared her. She was worried that I was going to run and scream it louder or something like that. No, I had to go sit down on the other end. But there was a power in it, certainly. But where it was coming from in me was the insecurity of having been called out. And I felt really bad about it afterwards because I thought that was easy. I did have that power but I don't really think she's a racist. And I think that these students today don't really think that they're at a racist institution. I did that because it felt good because there was something missing in me. For me, it was local during that moment. And I had drunk in something from the atmosphere even back then. But I think a lot of these kids are doing the same thing. They're, they're missing something. There's a hole inside and they fill it with this performance art of pretending that you know, Princeton is a racist institution. They're acting. And once more, I'll say that is what I wrote about in my first Substack piece. They're acting and we have to treat them as if they're acting, even though we know that racism exists, even though we know that racism can be systemic. We like Amanda Gorman's poem, et cetera. We can understand race and still call these people when we see it and tell them you're acting. There's some demands you have where we can think about it, but we will not capitulate significantly to this performance art. And I'm seeing people who just can't bring themselves to do it. And it's not always white administrators. It's okay, administrators let me press you on this, John. Do you think that this point, that a sense of uh, emotional insecurity or psychological insecurity in the victim 
may incline them to interpret ambiguous encounters in the least favorable way. Yes. In order to feel a protection from the real problem, which is their sense of insecurity or lack of standing or something like that. Do you yes. think it applies more broadly? So here are two ways it, it might apply more broadly to African-Americans. You might want to bring in affirmative action. You might want to say in a world in which a lot of people are getting a benefit because of racial affirmative action and getting in over their heads in certain competitive venues where they feel insecure about performance, they have this card that they can play, which is this chip on the shoulder, uh, anti-racist animus and hypersensitivity uh, to a front, uh, which leaves them in a constant state of, uh, of rage uh, at what they perceive to be the unjust imposition of anti-Black racism on themselves, when in fact what's going on is they don't know if they're ever going to write another paper that's worth a damn. They don't know if they're actually going to get tenure. They don't know if that job performance is going to uh, capture the sense in which they feel they know themselves are not performing, et cetera, because, because, well, you know, they were over their heads. That's one way of extending. Here's another way of extending. I want to get your reaction. A woman in an ambiguous encounter that could involve the possibility of sexual impropriety, but who has complicated psychological dynamics going on herself, might interpret the ambiguous circumstances in the least favorable way. Uh, I, I, I should probably be more concrete. And I, I'm in hot water already. I'm in hot water. But I, I'm, I'm trying to apply this model. The model is victim, oh, I see. Yeah. victim reports an affront based not upon the actual objective injury, but upon the sense of the need for being able to grasp onto an accusation as a way of, you know, I mean, I'm basically talking about the morning after is what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the morning after things happened, there was drinks. Uh, you feel really badly about it. And part of what you feel badly about is about yourself. How could I let myself get into that situation or whatever? Or he's not going to call and I just gave away the cookie or whatever. And then the ambiguity of the circumstance admits of a possible interpretation that you find much more psychologically comforting, uh, but that is much less favorable to the, uh, to the, uh, the uh, boy who's on the other side, the young man on the other side of this encounter, that kind of thing. Not generically, not every case is assumed. You would not say that every person who objects to racism is performing. But um, anyway, how about that? Would you go with me in, in um, extending that concept? I want to stay away from the, the, the woman part, although I know what you mean. But yes, I know from my own experience, first having been a student and watching these things over the decades since, that that kind of athletic interpretation and self-absolving interpretation is common in these reports about racism. And everybody should read Wilfred Riley's book, which is Race Crime Hoax. If you don't believe that it's very common for black students to, to be polite, misreport a lot of these things, there's a book about this. Riley is black. So yeah, it's important uh, to realize Riley has been a guest here on the Glenn show. I don't know, a year or two ago when we talked about his book. Yeah, we're not just making this stuff up and it's not just the very occasional anecdote. There's a there's a problem. There's a to use a word that we're all familiar with. There's a systemic problem here. And as for the students being insecure because they feel somewhat 
underqualified because of the real nature of how affirmative action is used at all but a few tippy top schools. I don't know. I haven't seen that myself because nobody's going to say that. And I would be surprised if that didn't play a part, but I cannot attest that that sense of academic underpreparation ends up creating people who then stick their fists up in the air. But I can certainly say that what you often see, well, you know, here's, here's a quick example. And I'm revealing that I spend more time on Twitter now than I used to. I used to like take a peek at it twice a day. Now it is kind of a spectator sport, partly because of the pandemic. And even this morning, um, I wrote my Atlantic piece and I tweeted it out, which is about um, the protests and how we need to start taking these students more seriously instead of pretending that all this stuff makes sense. And uh, a black guy wrote who said that he went to Columbia and he was saying that I don't understand that there is racism on these campuses, that Columbia has not opened up to black people significantly. It hasn't been a welcoming place for them. Now, I haven't been on Twitter for about <laughs> an hour, but I did take a look and I saw that a bunch of people, and yeah, they were white, a bunch of people very politely were asking this gentleman, okay, so what, what could Columbia do? What had it not done? Now, all of a sudden, this person was mysteriously silent, this person who's so hostile against me, nothing from them. Now, it would be difficult for that person to specify. Maybe they're going to come up with some one thing that, frankly, is kind of half-assed, you know, especially maybe if they happen to watch this. But they don't really have anything because their feeling that when they were at Columbia, they were racists, was racist, racistized. It's an act. And I teach at Columbia. And I've spoken to black students, and I know that there are racist things that happen on campus, things that happen on social media, et cetera. It's not a utopia. But the idea that that campus that I now have 13 years experience of is a hotbed of bigotry of some sort, albeit subtle, no, no, I don't sleep there, but no, it's simply not true. And it wasn't true whenever this guy went there either. He's making it up because it feels good to him to say so. Why it feels good to him to say so, I would say, we've talked about this, it's the group membership, it's the sense of being part of something larger. There's some sort of insecurity, I don't know what his was, but the idea is that he gets something out of claiming that he was a hero. I was on this campus and I dealt with this racism and I got that piece of paper. He he also knows that the administration is likely to respond to his uh, indictment of the institution as being racist. I think of Ice Gruber, the incident, incident mm-hmm. at Princeton where he made the public statement that, of acknowledging that Princeton had been racist. And then somebody in the Trump administration's civil rights enforcement uh, sent a warning over there saying, we're, we're going to investigate whether or not you indeed did do what you just right. confessed to doing, which is violate the civil rights laws. And we know that these institutions of Princeton or Brown or Columbia are run by and uh, manned and womaned by people who are on the whole politically very progressive and sympathetic to the anti-racist cause. The the idea that there's quote unquote institutional racism rife in an institution like Princeton or Columbia or Brown- It's absurd. Abuses the, makes so broad a use of the institutional racism phrase, meaning that it's an institution where some black people might be made to feel uncomfortable by some stuff. You know, that's basically what they're saying. Uh, student club had a party where some 
uh, statement was made that made somebody hung a flag outside their window that offended my sensibility. Somebody chalked on the sidewalk, I'm a pro-Trump supporter, and that has made me feel. The administration failed to make a strenuous denunciation of America after the George Floyd incident. It only issued a tepid denunciation All of America. The African-American Studies Program is not a department that can grant tenure. It's just a place where you have people with affiliations with other departments. We Racist demand autonomy. We demand freedom. <laughs> It's absurd. It's completely absurd. Mm -hmm. It ignores degree. There's this tacit idea that a black person is supposed to ignore the issue of degree. And if you have that tacit idea, what you're saying is that we black people are cognitively challenged. If you think that we really can't understand gray zones and degree, then you think that we have less of a mentality, frankly, than sparrows, parrots, and orangutans and some whales. You're saying that we have the mentality of guinea pigs. But, but what I'm saying is deeply insulting. Appreciate your point. I, I just wanted to, <laughs> to, to add to that. None of this gets off the ground unless the students can anticipate a positive response from the administrative personnel to the protest. I mean, it, it's all buttressed. It, it, these things are supporting each other in some kind of mutually reinforcing way. The supply of outrage is uh, in part a consequence of the correct anticipation of uh, peeing in the pants. That, yes. that, the, the outrage party and the quivering cowards are all in, the, in cahoots with one another. Yes, yes. Um, it's a routine. It's a dance. Yeah. And it really needs to stop, partly because it is a routine within which Black people are thought quietly to be chimpanzees. And I really wish that these students and the professors who support them understand how dumb they are being considered. Not how dumb they look, because then that becomes why are you so concerned with what white people think of us? It's that they, not how we look, are we supposed to be respectable Negroes, you know, respectability yeah, politics? That. No, that's not the point. It's that these people quietly are thinking, these people are dumb, and so we're going to approach them on their level. I don't know where people get the idea that that's black strength or that it's progressive. People really need to get past that. And I just think that black students who protest over things that don't make sense, there's a such thing as a sensible black protest, but if it's about something that doesn't make any damn sense and you're making these demands that your school becomes an anti-racism academy along the lines of Maoist ideology, frankly, you have to understand that the people who give in to you think you are dumb as shit. And you have to understand that that is a problem you've been condescended to. But no, they don't get it. They just think that to stick your fist in the air and yell certain slogans makes you somebody of higher wisdom and makes you a person who is continuing the struggle of Dr. King. No, he would have had choice words watching some of these things these days. I think, we, I think a piece might be missing here. Uh, if you look at uh, away from educational institutions and into the private sector, it, it raises the question that I'm trying to put my finger on because uh, the educational institutions are one thing, there's a culture there, but uh, the business world, the human resource departments in large corporations, whether it be in Silicon Valley or it be the National Basketball Association or it be Nike or uh, other uh, such companies, or I mean, we could give many examples, is a different story. P company might have thousands or tens of thousands of employees, 
they, they've got uh, a complex marketing problem where they've got a segmented market of customers to whom they have to appeal to try to maintain their brand uh, loyalty and whatnot. Um, and they are uh, in the private sector, in the human resource departments, in the employment uh, training uh, area, in the corporate imaging, in the advertising, uh, they are also reflecting a woke sensibility to some extent. Boycotts are threatened against company products if they get the wrong image uh, on racial issues associated with themselves. Employees are in effect going on passive internal strikes of uprising against uh, the corporate structure because they feel that uh, the company is on the wrong side of history with respect of this uh, or, or that. Um, and that, the logic of that phenomenon, wokeism in the private sector, a law firm that worries that it has to have enough black partners. Um, as I say, a sports franchise that doesn't want to run into the problem of having its athletes disgruntled about the fact that most of them are black and yet the company doesn't, the team, the organization doesn't, doesn't reflect their values, quote unquote. Um, that, that's something, isn't it a, a little bit different from what it is that we're seeing on the college campuses? Yeah. And um, sometimes it's also just that there's an extent to which wokeism sells. And I would say often it's a wokeism that is not excessive. I don't think that being woke is wrong. It's There's a certain fringe that's now exerting a kind of influence. But you think about something like Roseanne Barr, the actress and comedian whose career just ended because she said that Valerie Jarrett looks like an ape. It was that one thing. And she said that on Twitter and that took care of her TV show. It's now been running a few seasons without her because she can't be on it. And that just took care of that based on that one comment. And I remember thinking at the time, nobody who's telling her to clear out her dressing room and refusing to ever have her on television again thinks that that one tweet is a justification for somebody's whole career being over. But the idea is that it doesn't sell to have backed somebody like that. And that's, that's one right. of those things. I've you know, said that I, here before. I, Secondary yeah. sanction. The, 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 the secondary sanction. So Roseanne Barr offends. So we're going to sanction her. Okay. And, and that's the message. The message is don't do business with her. Now somebody breaks that agreement and does business with her, produces mm -hmm. her TV show, invites her onto their stage, uh, give her an audience or whatnot. That person has to be punished. In order for the overall regime to work, you have to not only sanction the offenders, you have to sanction the people who themselves fail to sanction the offenders. That's where the action is. That's mm -hmm. how the witch hunt actually gains traction. Mm -hmm. And so we are in 1250 in France among the scholastics. Yes, that is really what this is like. And I just, I just hope that under this new administration, if we really are having a racial reckoning, we can rethink our way back to the sensible, for me, it would be the sensible left. Now, I'm not saying that there doesn't need to be change, but this business of the inquisition based on things that simply don't make logical sense from A to B, where everybody just bows down. This is, this is a scourge. This is religion taking over in the public square in a country where we were supposed to be past that. And language is awkward 
and we don't use the word religion, but that's exactly what's going on. And to be honest, that's what I try to get across in this, this book that I wrote. Many people seem to think I'm writing a study of the parallels between religion and excessive wokeism. I'm not writing anything that boring. Nobody wants to read an analysis like that for 300 pages. I'm writing about the danger that this proposes to this country. And Glenn and I did not set this up to be an ad for my book. It's just that that seems to have come up again. We didn't set it up that way, but that's the way it worked out. And it's all good. <laughs> but, yeah. So as you see, Glenn, I'm, I'm mad about this stuff. And it's not the, you know, it's not happening against me much. There's a story I'll tell you in, a, in, a, in a, about a month. But I just, I really worry when I see so many people refusing to make sense. It just, it, it bothers me. Well, this is a conversation that should be continued. Uh, I, I don't know what the future is going to uh, hold, but I, I'm not optimistic about how the advent of the Biden administration will affect this, um, this phenomenon that we're talking about. I, I think the sensible left on race is not coming back. I think the loony left on race is uh, going to be empowered. I mean, who are going to be the people, because Joe Biden is obviously not going to be personally reviewing all of this stuff, uh, in the Department of Justice, in the Department of Education, in the White House staff, um, uh, and whatnot, who are going to have the uh, portfolio uh, to deal with these issues? Who are going to be called in for advice? Who are, who are going to be in the meetings? Um, and uh, the, the pub, uh, pol political strategy team that have to factor in the black vote, the quote unquote, the black vote. Who are the brokers gonna be uh, in those meetings where uh, the impact of the administration's policy on whatever it might be uh, is being uh, assessed uh, for uh, its, its uh, compatibility with the electoral strategy uh, going forward. Biden is supposed to not be running for reelection. Kamala Harris is the heir apparent. Uh, how is that gonna, work exactly. I don't see any good in that in terms of anti-woke. Uh, you know, we should call ourselves the woke busters, by the way. John. <laughs> the people who say Ibram X. Kennedy is an empty suit, who dare Hannah Jones to come on the program and to debate us, who think Ta-Nehisi Coates is vastly overrated, who et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> who are you going to call when the diversity and inclusion team comes for your head? Who are you going to call? Woke busters. <laughs> You know, you just you just set up a hashtag. I can see it. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it's all about. We're we're, we're in the yeah. uh, the social media business now, John. <laughs> we are, aren't we? Wow. Driving traffic to our site. Anyway, how about we call it a day? We discuss those books. We John and I are going to have a conversation about uh, books on race over the uh, decades that we have read that have deeply impacted upon us and that we would recommend to the attention of others. Uh, yeah, like if somebody our... if somebody asks, like, what do you like? Like, how, what, what do you approve of? Well, we're going to talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. So we can make that the subject of our next conversation. Good to talk to you, John. You too, Glenn. This was fun. <laughs> yeah. Take care. See you.